After Nature is the result of three years of development and collaboration with TBA21 and TBA21 Academy, where I participated in an ocean expedition in New Zealand and a residency at the Ocean Conservatory and Lab in Port Antonio, Jamaica, called the Alligator's Head Foundation, which is also a partner of TBA21. This exhibition is very much responding to these experiences and encounters I have had with scientists, ocean activists, curators and artists also orbiting TBA21's network. Nature, the ocean and its majestic marine life in full bioluminescence and its preservation is the central focus of this exhibition. The title After Nature refers to metaphysics, to the idea of reality outside human experience. Corals and wood, the two oxygen-giving forces. There is the oxygen created by the ocean and the oxygen produced by trees. Some say the ocean produces even more oxygen than trees, but apparently it's too difficult to quantify. Each breath we take as its source from either the ocean or from the forest, and that is in many ways what this show is about. For most people, if you imagine a deep ocean, it's quite a scary proposition but light exists in that depth. That was Claudia Comte, I am Igor Ramirez, and this is Stage. I want to highlight something Claudia just said. Allow me to paraphrase her. The oxygen of every single breath you and I take comes either from the ocean or from the forest. As simple as that. As definitive as that. Since this episode was originally recorded, we have witnessed some of the most devastating wildfires, heat waves, storms, and flooding across the world. Climate change is happening. The latest UN report is alarming. We are running out of time. At stage, we believe in the transformative power of art. We need that transformative power because we need to change. As season two comes to an end, I want to thank you for joining us along this journey. We will be back in a few weeks with new content, still addressing the most urgent issues of our times through the powerful view of our artists. I leave you now with Markus Reimann, our guest host and the director of TBA21 Academy, our sister organization. Hello, my name is Markus Reimann and I'm the director of TBA21 Academy, which is the center within TBA21 that aims to foster a deeper relationship to the ocean through the lens of art. For this podcast series, I'm speaking to artist Claudia Comte and marine biologists Denise Henry of the Alligator Head Foundation and David Gruber. We're speaking specifically about corals, their importance in the ecosystem, the symbiotic relationships that they carry within themselves, and their ability to sense oncoming disasters. We're speaking about shape, we're speaking about time, and we're speaking about the importance of restoration. We're starting off with Denise Henry. Welcome to this podcast. It's fantastic to have you. Please, would you introduce yourself? My name is Denise Henry. I'm a marine ecologist um, and I'm working at the Alligator Head Foundation, currently the research program manager. I have a background in ecosystem restoration with a focus on coral restoration for about the last 15 years. And now it's my absolute pleasure 
to welcome David Gruber to the podcast. Hi, David. Would you please introduce yourselves to our listeners? I'm a marine biologist. I'm someone who's always been interested in the in the ocean from from many different levels, and um, really have have um, spent my life thinking about uh, different creatures in the sea. Can you explain to me what a coral is? Corals are a group of animals that are in a, a phylum called uh, called cnidarians. Their closest cousins are jellyfish and sea anemone. So the, the jellyfish go back, you know, millions of years, like more than um, 500 million years. But but corals, as we know them today, reef building corals go back around 240 million years, just to give a kind of deep sense of time that that these animals have been around you know and, and also just thinking about the relatives thinking that uh, a jellyfish is a is a very close relative of a coral if you flip a jellyfish upside down that is in essence the structure of a coral individual or polyp so you'll have the body in the base which is in those tiny holes that you'll see on a coral skeleton and the tentacles extend above and out through the top of the whole of the polyp structure. These animals have a symbiotic relationship with algae, with a particular type of algae, which is called symbiodinium. And that algae allows the coral to feed. So the algae gives coral 80 to 85% of its daily nutrition by photosynthesis. The algae carries out its normal functions of photosynthesis, but gives the food product to the coral, and the coral in turn gives the algae somewhere safe to live. Corals are colonial animals generally, so each of those little holes that you'll see on a coral skeleton is an individual polyp, but they are all interconnected so it's communal feeding. All of that algae goes together. All of the food that they collect with their tentacles, which is the other type of way they feed, goes to communal, a communal resource that feeds the entire structure. The corals have formed a relationship with an algae a plant. And this is a really long-standing relationship. And, and when you think about the relationship, there's a lot of evidence showing that this relationship actually started out as a parasite. Anytime that something embeds itself into, into someone's skin, it's usually for a parasitic means, but the earth is never stable. It's always changing. The, the oxygen concentrations are changing. The temperature is changing. And with all these changes, the coral and the algae have landed in a scenario where they're actually they need each other, where there it's a, it's an obligate symbiosis, where if one party is not engaged, that the, the, neither one of them can survive. So it's an interesting relationship that's happened over time. And also, you know, this misconception that, um, that a coral is like a stone and you're very clear that it's an animal. That's so right. The reef building ones or otherwise known as stony corals, um, just because they look, you know, they look like stones, calcium carbonate is their as their structure, but but they're living, you know, the the when you see a massive coral head, that was generation after generation after generation after generation of coral growing on top of each other. Um, so you could be looking at something that's been growing for several thousand years. 
but only the very surface of the skin of that is uh, is the living animal. So during mm -hmm. the day, they're basking in the sun and they're relying on these algae to give them their food. And then at night, they stick out their tentacles and they're reaching and grabbing and, and getting little pieces of zooplankton. Um, so you can actually see them actively feeding and, and it looks like, you know, jellyfish tentacles that come out. So the beauty of a night dive too is seeing what looks like a stone during the day suddenly comes to life at night. With corals, night and day, it's very, very different on the one hand, but also our sensory system does really not allow us to see the corals in their full expression. In one sense, that's one of this earliest kind of decision makings or consciousness of like knowing where the sun is and moving towards it. Um, you see it with corals that get stuck under under ledges. You know, they they move towards the sun um, as being kind of an early form of decision. So the sun just plays such a key role for everything, um, for us at least. You know, it, it, the sun provides like. 99.999% of all the energy that, that we, we derive and use, um, uh, you know, on, on this planet. So in thinking in terms of like a coral's consciousness of what is their life like and, and starting from they need this algae that is inside of their skin. So this algae is needing the sun. And then the algae is then secreting some sugars into the coral but then at night is also able to, to eat things. There are many corals that are very bright and colorful. And, you know, that kind of opens the question of like, well, why are they so bright? Why, why do we have such a rich diversity of colors in our world? I think there's many different reasons, you know, the, the color really represents the which of the, of the spectrum of the sun's light are, are getting absorbed. And, that could have all different practicality reasons for a coral. It might be related to sunscreen, to protecting it from, um, from the sun. There is another layer of information that there's only certain kinds of wavelengths from the sun that actually drive the engines of photosynthesis. There are many different colors for humans um, that we could see in corals in terms of what wavelengths of light they're absorbing and re-emitting. The thought of reshuffling the light into a spectrum that makes it more productive, but that's not the reason for them to be bioluminescent, is it? Bioluminescence is the ability of an animal to make its own light, to make a photon that is viewable by, say, a human. Bioluminescence is this cold light-emitting reaction where it's emitting light in the visible range to, to humans. From what I understand, corals can reproduce in two ways. They can either sexually reproduce through spawning or they can just clone themselves. Corals, they're more active form of reproduction, asexual reproduction, which is... The term that's used is budding, where it quite literally pinches off a piece of a polyp to create a new polyp. It, it extrudes another polyp, so it grows within the colony. And this happens continuously throughout its life. Sexual reproduction is maybe one to two times for the year. It is very rare. 
and you can have different combinations. And then it happens at a specific time of year, which is controlled by temperature, light, wave energy, as well as stresses. If a coral has been stressed throughout the rest of the year, it may not put energy into sexual reproduction for that year. So we're coming up to summer right now, which is typically the time for most corals, at least the Caribbean corals, to reproduce, to spawn. So it will be typically a few days after the full moon, a certain number of hours after sunset. Do we know anything about corals communicating with each other? There's not only communication from corals to other corals, um, there is communication with corals within this entire community that lives within the coral's mucus called the hol- holobont. Um, there are bacteria, there's other, um, there's these algae, there's other um, microorganisms that are living there. And there's, communi- there's communication and, and crosstalk um, that is happening all throughout. Maybe we don't understand the, the amount of communication as, as perhaps um, that we've looked at on land, but it'll be very similar. So Denise, you've been working with the Alligator Head Foundation, which manages the East Portland Fish Sanctuary since nearly six years now. And um, the first program that was launched at the Alligator Head Foundation was actually the Coral Restoration Program. Can you explain to us the importance of coral reef ecosystems and the role that they play in coastal marine systems? Coral reefs are barriers and Jamaica is a coastal country. So the need for having active and sufficiently alive and protective reefs around the island is very important because we also do exist in a hurricane belt. Coral reefs protect our coastline from wave energy, from wind energy. In the last two to three decades, our reefs have been declining significantly through a number of different processes, overfishing, nutrient input, hurricanes, and other natural disasters, which has caused decline in the coral population. So as a response to that, organizations like the Alligator Head Foundation and several others across the island have actively gone in to try to replant coral, to rebuild our reef structures and increase the coral population and coral diversity around the island. One of the other basic functions or major functions of coral reefs is to provide habitat and nursery grounds for animals. Um, Corals provide a structure that animals can live in between and under to either breed, put their eggs, or to hide from predators. And for this to actually function, you need to have living and resilient corals in the area. Um, So again, with the decline that I've mentioned, we have lost that potential. The reef environment and coral reefs are the most biodiverse ecosystem in the entire ocean, um, rivaled only on land by tropical rainforests. So it is because of all these little nooks and crannies and homes that the reefs build um, that allows for the rest of the the fish, the invertebrates to, to be there. So they really provide the framework and the backbone. 
And when the reefs disappear, then, then all these other creatures disappear as well. Jamaica has, from what I understand, since the, the 70s and 80s, um, seen a constant decline in its coral population. The decline really started in about the early 80s. Yeah, In the 70s, we had the best reefs. Um, our reefs were actually the first ever described reefs in the late 1960s by Professor Thomas Gurrell, who wrote about how reef formation happens. And so that was late 60s, early 70s. In 1980, we had a hurricane, which is Hurricane Charlie, which naturally, and, and this is a, a normal and natural process, it topples over corals, it breaks corals, both north and south coast of the island were affected, and the corals were broken. This was followed very quickly in 1983 by the loss of the black long-spine sea urchin, which is called diadema. And they are what you call a keystone herbivore. They consume tons of algae. And at the time, there were thousands of this particular type of urchin located throughout the water column, throughout all depths. So with this die-off and... and when I say die-off, we're talking about a loss of about 90 to 95% of the population throughout the entire region within the space of a few months. You compound that with a growing population. So in the 80s, Jamaica went through a population incline. So we've lost one of our major herbivores. We have more humans on land putting more nutrients into the water and demanding more food, right? So the fishing pressure increased in the 80s as well. And then follow that up by another significant hurricane, which was in 1989, which is Hurricane Gilbert, um, which hit Jamaica at a Cat 4, and again, decimated our coral. The coral at that time had not had enough time to recover from all of these previous issues, from being broken in 1980, from the lack of herbivores, and in about 1994, I believe, is when it was first written as the tipping point, as the phase shift, which is a shift from being a coral-dominated reef to an algae-dominated reef, where we had more algae than we did coral. And we have been battling with that ever since. In Jamaica, the act of coral restoration is relatively new, the first ever coral nursery that was deployed here in Jamaica was deployed in 2006. So we were existing in this phase shift for almost two decades. So that phase shift happened over that period of time and then continued to grow in to the point where the algae is now established as the dominant structure on the reef and becomes even harder to remove and to sustainably remove and i guess the the growing um demands for farming uh, the increased use of um, pesticides and fertilizers the nutrient runoff through the watershed then also contribute to uh, not only algae blooms every now and again but a constant growth of uh, of the algae on the reef right it's absolutely correct. Our watersheds lead directly into the ocean. We have very large watersheds. Um, and in our farming communities, the use of fertilizers 
improper management of livestock and the washing of these pig pig styes um, will put a lot more nutrients into the water in addition to just general improper disposal of waste. Um, sanitation has been an issue here in Jamaica for a long time. The water in Jamaica is very nutrient polluted, not heavily chemically polluted, but very nutrient polluted. And with a lack of herbivores, be it fish, be it urchins, that nutrient pollution re results in algal blooms, results in an algal dominated reef. With the rising water temperatures uh, all throughout the Atlantic, um, I guess the the reoccurrences of more and more superstorms coming through the Caribbean, therefore the necessity for healthy ecosystems, for healthy eth uh, reef ecosystems and mangrove forests is um, is becoming more and more urgent. Definitely. The need for stronger reefs, the need for resilient corals, be it both temperature and density resilience, is more important now than it ever has been. And so personally, you as um, a marine ecologist, a coral a specialist in coral restoration, as also being very aware of the changing climate and the crisis that this kind of perpetuates, how do you deal with the fact that on the one hand, you're struggling with so many challenges, the absence of herbivores, the algae domination, the nutrient runoff in, into the ocean, but also time, just the time it takes for corals to grow. How does one deal with the awareness of the acute urgency and the necessity to act on scale? It's honestly very frustrating. But at the same time, people that do this do this because they are passionate about it. It's a relatively small network where we talk to each other, we share technologies. So the technology that we're currently using in the wet lab that we have here, microfragmenting, is one of the processes that should speed up the ability to outplant more corals and to be able to put more resilient corals on the reef. The ability to collect spawn when they're spawning and create more genetically diverse and potentially resilient corals, corals that will survive temperature changes. So this is a little small scale, but you need to get small scale successes before we can scale up, in my opinion. Do you feel a kind of bigger responsibility because you're aware of, of the state of the, the ocean, the state of the Jamaican coast and marine system, the state of the planet? I do. I, I feel a bigger pressure to find solutions that work, to find solutions that are scalable and that are reproducible economically as well. So one of the things I personally focus on is trying to do things that don't require as specific materials. I try to find solutions that we can do here, find the materials that we can source here. You take the small successes that you have and you work with those and, and hopefully get bigger successes. Thinking about the climate crisis, we know what is happening and we know that we need systemic change and we need it quickly. But nevertheless, it is incredibly difficult for us to respond to this in large scale and meaningful ways. Corals, on the other hand, um, they have, according to a paper that you were involved with, 
they have the ability to sense oncoming disasters. When we talk about the corals and we talk about things that are happening over 240 million years, life is over this deep, slow time. And there's so much to learn from the past in terms of how the life responded to those. So what's happening now is that we are in the middle of an extinction, but it's happening at a pace that our human timescales are having a hard time registering because you're in the middle of something that seems like it's happening quite slow, but if you zoom out, you actually see it's happening really, really fast. And what we can do by looking at the corals is we could go back because the corals leave this fossil record. You could drill into like a fossil bone, um, almost like a tree core, and be able to go back in time and see like how things happened over time. And we could go back and look at what the corals did at that last big extinction um, at the one 65 million years ago when the, when the dinosaurs went extinct. And, and how did they respond? The corals are doing exactly what they did 65 million years ago today. They're shifting in, in polyp size and shapes and different characteristics. And it was a way of like almost putting, putting our ear to the ground and, you know, we can't talk to a coral, but we could go back and look at how they responded to this event. And essentially they're responding in the same way today that they responded 65 million years ago. How does this make you feel? And how do you deal with the kind of frustration of knowing, producing, communicating, and seeing the, the slow pace on uh, in the kind of adoption of of the necessary changes. In one sense, I feel a sense of honor to be able to help decipher these things. In the other sense, there's this feeling of dread of, of seeing a car crash coming and, and wanting to, you know, wanting to kind of alert the rest of our species that this is happening. And, and then also recognizing that there's so much deep human psychology that comes into play and, and how to react and why we're reacting the way. And, And even a gentle and kindness for us in the way we're built to, to recognize that no species on the face of this earth has ever had to confront such an issue consciously and has ever had to self-regulate consciously. The way that you describe your work with them, do you build a relationship to those corals? I do. I have corals that I'm a little more attached to that I see. And we have one, there's a particular coral we have in the lab right now, which I'm seeing very, very few living pieces on the reef. And it's one of my favorite types of corals. And this particular one, I haven't started to cut it yet. I just want it to survive in the lab, has started to bud and has started to grow in our system which is just so exciting for me. I'm just so happy. And, and that's my little, my little flower. Um, I have the ones that have been there for two years. So one of our first experiments, which was a piece of cavernosa, which we had cut into very, very small pieces. I think it was two or three polyps. Um, and this is a very slow growing coral. It grows naturally, it grows at about one centimeter a year. This particular one grew from 
two polyps to about 10 polyps now in the last two years. So it's one of those that you keep checking because it survived. It survived all our tiny disasters that we've had in the lab through the learning process. Um, you know, so yes, I, there are some that I'm a little more attached to than others. I think being a scientist is a little bit like, we have to keep our inner child because we're always asking questions and how does this work and how does this happen? You know, you get invested in the, in the process of, of watching things unfold and connecting to them. And I think that's where it comes from to also having a philosophy of that the animals will share more and I'll learn more from them if they're approached in the right way. And that is it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And if so, that you tune in very soon again. Goodbye. Today's artist was Claudia Comte. Our guest host was Markus Reimann. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tva21.org. The editor-in-chief of Stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Surroth is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutierrez is our content curator. John Aranguren is our curatorial assistant. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramirez. Nina Speranda is our project manager. And our theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. Thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.